This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. You may find Narnia a more savage place than you remember. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time. I am your host, James Hamrick, and I am joined with my co-host, Gabe Green. What's going on, man? I am doing quite well. I'm very excited to talk about more Narnia. Um, so we are on the second chapter of the Chronicles of Narnia with Prince Caspian. And to help us talk about this, we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Brian Carnell, a.k.a. Glumpuddle, from Narnia Web and the Talking Beast podcast. Welcome to Franchise Fatigue, Brian. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you on. Um, why don't you just uh, you know int- briefly introduce yourself to our guests and tell us a little bit about, uh, about uh, Narnia Web and your podcast. Yeah, so I write for NarniWeb.com, and I'm also one of the hosts of Talking Beast, the Narnia podcast, where we uh, every episode, uh, we basically uh, explore the world of C.S. Lewis and also keep up with the latest Narnia movie news. They are Netflix is developing new Narnia stuff, still waiting for more news on that, but we just kind of follow that every step, you know, w- w- every news development one step at a time. Um, and then also just looking at things in the books and uh, kind of applying them to um, today. I think there's so much wealth to be explored uh, in these books. Um, and we just do that uh, one chapter at a time. So I have to geek out for just a second. Um, after, shortly after I read the books, I went online, uh, you know, trying trying to find more of this fandom. And I found the Narnia Web forums and I completely just uh, dove headfirst into them. Uh, that was right. I think it would have been about 2009, basically the year leading up to the uh, the release of Voyages on Treader. And it was just a, it was my first fandom experience. It was like a huge, really uh, kind of formative thing for me. And also, the uh, the at that time it would have been the Narnia Web podcast uh, was like my first podcast I ever listened to. So now you know, ten years later, having you on my show is kind of kind of surreal. So. Oh, it come full circle. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm really just, excited now. <laughs> yeah, so just th- just want to thank you, you and the rest of the Narnia Web team for the really awesome work y'all did on that. Oh, great! Well, maybe I'll actually learn how to do a podcast from this experience. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we begin our discussion on Prince Caspian, I want to ask you guys if you enjoy the show to please uh, go go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review that would help us out. And also, if you want to follow us, uh, you know, all our latest updates, please you can uh, you can like us on Facebook at at Franchise Fatigue Podcast. So I asked on Facebook what our listeners thought of this, and I got a couple of responses. Uh, David Lee from the Popcorn Theology podcast said, Switchfoot song, This Is Home, is the best thing that came out of this movie, a favorite of mine. I, actually, I think The Call is actually the best thing to come out of this movie, but um, I agree to disagree there. Silas said, such a great movie. Uh, Jeremiah said, I like the beginning of it, but they switched around a bunch of key points and turned it into a teen drama. So unfortunately, it was a big disappointment in comparison to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I loved. And before we move to the main discussion, James, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this film came to the big screen? Just to talk about the original story itself, um, following the completion of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in March of uh, 1949, Lewis immediately began writing a sequel, uh, one that he would finish just before the new year in 1949, though it wouldn't be published um, then under the title Prince Caspian Return to Narnia until October 15th, 1951. Since then, uh, it hasn't been adapted uh, as much as Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which we've seen in a lot of different ways. Um, the only significant adaptation of the book prior to the film was the 1989 BBC series, which we already covered. Although in this adaptation, Prince Caspian and Voyage of the Dawn Treader were made into one singular story. Sort of. Like, they're still very separated. 
like I think it was like two episodes and two episodes or something. Like it was I guess one season or something. Yeah, it's it's very you can tell that so yeah, merging into one story is I guess overstating it. They're they're very much have their own beginning, middle and end and everything. Um but it's kind of packaged the way um they kind of package the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and things like that where it's it's kind of truncated it into the time slot of a of a single one. Prior to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe's release, the screenplay for Prince Caspian had already been written. Um, according to Andrew Adamson, the director, the decision to move directly into Prince Caspian following uh, public the publication order instead of the chronological order of the series uh, was made because he said, "If we don't make it now, we'll never be able to. Uh, we'll never be able to because the actors will be too old." And so. Yeah, it, right after they pretty much finished the final edit, they kind of started work on Prince Caspian even before the first film um, landed uh, into theaters. Though the uh, the huge or the I guess surprising amount of success that Wardrobe had uh, helped propel uh, production even further. Um, it was very much full steam ahead. Um, once they saw the box office numbers. Screenwriters uh, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely returned from The Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe to script this film alongside Adamson. And a big struggle in writing this was the really odd structure of the book. In the book, the kids are pulled to Narnia, they meet Trumpkin, and then Trumpkin says, I'm going to tell you the story of Prince Caspian. And then we spend the next like several chapters in a flashback talking about Prince Caspian. Then we come back to the Pevensies, they walk for a few chapters, and by the time we actually meet Prince Caspian, we're pretty much up to what would be the third act of a movie. <laughs> and we and then you know, we go into the climax and it's it it just just wouldn't have worked so they essentially had to basically restructure the entire story to you know to give parallel stories between Caspian and the Narnians and then uh, make them meet sooner so they could have you know more conflict uh, between them and with the with the with the uh, antagonists just to make it a more cinematic story. They also wanted to focus on what it would be like for the kids you know having lived to adulthood as, you know, kings and queens to return back to England as children, uh, you know, who, you know, are completely unimportant and are just getting shunted around. And that's definitely a a big part of the movie. I'm, I think it (laughs) is done to various degrees of success, but I think it's very, definitely a very intriguing uh, aspect to explore that wasn't really explored in the book. I think, you know, I think it's a very like a lot of the stuff they added with Line the Worst of the Wardrobe, I think it's a very intelligent adaptive choice. Um, how well it was done will remain to be seen. Uh, so as far as casting, uh, obviously the biggest addition was going to be Caspian himself. Uh, the decision to cast a bit older was due to a passage in the book mentioning that he appeared to be around Peter's age. So they tried to cast um, someone of similar age to William Mosley. Um, in an interview during the release of Hacksaw Ridge, Andrew Garfield revealed that he auditioned for the role of Prince Caspian. Uh, in a quote, he said, Ben Barnes ultimately got it. Ben Barnes, I'll get you. No, I really just wanted that part. I think the feedback was, he's not handsome enough. What can you do? Hey, I'm not handsome enough for Prince Caspian. I have grown to love Ben Barnes as an actor like through the Punisher series, but I kind of wish Andrew Garfield got it. <laughs> I I think I actually really enjoyed Barnes here, but I haven't seen him to his full potential in Punisher yet. So, within so whenever Barnes auditioned, within three weeks of auditioning, he won the role. And uh, there's a story about that. He was originally set to tour with the Royal National Theatre's production of The History of Boys, 
but he ended up accepting the role and left England without informing the theater. And the film's producer, Mark Johnson, joked um, about Barnes saying, he probably isn't the nation's favorite actor right now uh, because of him leaving the theater without um, informing everyone. And he actually only narrowly avoided a lawsuit for it. Getting into the, the Telmarine casting, uh, there's a, a, a diverse group of people who are cast. Sergio Castellitto is cast as King Miras and Pier Francesco Favino as General Glazelle, uh, and they're both Italian. Just an interesting tidbit about Favino. Uh, he essentially acted as a translator on set for Andrew Adamson uh, due to his ability to speak numerous languages, and there were a lot of different nationalities on set. Uh, and so he's kind of there to help facilitate some of the conversations between different people there. And it's kind of funny. He's he's putting on an accent. Like I, I'm assuming he was educated in England because he has a, a more proper kind of English uh, accent to his to him. But he had to you know, put on a fake Spanish accent as well. He's good. He's really good in this. Damien Alcazar uh, was cast as Lord Sepespian, um, and he is Mexican. Vincent Grass was cast as Doctor Cornelius, uh, and he is Belgian. Uh, and Alicia Boracero uh, as Queen Pruna Prismia. Which is uh, one of my favorite Spanish. names for uh, like a third, fourth year character. <laughs> there's, some, <laughs> there's some great names going on here. So uh, when it came to casting the rest of the Narnians, I didn't realize how many familiar faces were here. Uh, it had been a while since I had seen it. Peter Dinklage was uh, Trumpkin, and this must have been early in his career. Um, Warwick Davis was cast as Nickabrick. Uh, Ken Stott as the voice of Truffle Hunter, and I didn't even have to look that up. I, I know Balin's voice when I hear it. Yeah, actually, when, when Ken Stott was cast as Balin, he was, oh, that's Truffle Hunter. <laughs> See, I, I feel like I was just so detached from, from this movie and the production that I, just, I never made that connection. Um, Eddie Izzard was cast as the voice of Reaper Cheap, who might kind of steal the show for me here. Um, Cornell John as Glenstorm the Centaur, uh, and Shang Rangi as Austerius the Minotaur, uh, and Josh Campbell as the voice of Austerius. Uh, and he actually played um, General Ottman from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So he's bringing his bulky physique back for this. Some additional cameos. Uh, Tilda Swinton repi- reprises her role as Jadis, the White Witch. Harry Gregson Williams, the film's composer, provides the voice of Pattertwig, the squirrel, the very ador- adorable squirrel, and Douglas Gresham as a Telmarine crier. So Adamson, when he came into this film, you know, having already you know done one live action film, he came in a lot more confident. And he said that he really wanted to make this a bigger film. Like in all the interviews, he talks about he really just wanted to expand the scale, bigger sets, more locations. And, um, yeah, I think you really succeed. Like the location work in this film is pretty incredible. There's so many shots where like it's just a, like a a close up of one guy and then way in the background we see this gorgeous mountain. Like he really made great use of locations. Also some of the sets are incredible. Like the set of Maris's castle. Oh, so cool. Was like actually built like 50 feet high and all the entire courtyard is there. The uh, the uh, production de- the production designer said it was the biggest set he had ever seen. Principal photography began in February of 2007 in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, they shot the uh, Return to Narnia segment out on a beach called uh, Cathedral Cove. Really gorgeous location. Um, unlike the previous film, where uh, pr- the majority of uh, Line of the Witch of the Warship was shot in New Zealand, uh, most of Prince Caspian was shot in Central Europe uh, because New Zealand didn't have studios big enough to accommodate the expansive sets for this film. 
Um, the most of the studio shooting was done in Prague. Uh, the set from the set and location for Mirrors' bridge, which is another crazy big set, uh, was practically built and shot in a valley in Slovenia. And the final battle was shot in uh, the Czech Republic with, I believe, a, c- a couple hundred extras. You know, for Mirrors' army and the Narnians, like they they really put a, a fully equipped army on that field. Post-production was done in London for the tax credits. Um, the effects works was so extensive that it was able to qualify as a British film, uh, despite not actually being shot there. Harry Gregson Williams returned to score this film, and once again, several artists were brought on to write songs for the end credits. Uh, Regina Spector wrote and f- performed The Call. Switchfoot contributed This Is Home. Oren Lavi did A Dance Around the Memory Tree. And Hane Huckleberg did a song called Lucy, which wasn't actually in the theatrical version. But it uh, played on the DVD, which is interesting. It was originally scheduled to be released on December 14th, 2007. Uh, December was where uh, Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe was released. Uh, But they pushed it back until May 16th, 2008 to avoid conflicting with The Water Horse, which was another Walden film. They were also confident that the darker tone and more ambitious scale of Prince Caspian would uh, help it stand up to the summer, summer competition, which might not have been a good idea. Yeah, Iron Man and Indiana Jones. <laughs> so let's just, uh, as we move into the main discussion, Brian, well, just give us a, like, a very brief history, uh, uh, kind of a rundown of your history with the Narnia series, and then these films in particular, kind of leading into your initial thoughts when you saw Prince Caspian. Sure, Narnia's been a part of my life for about as long as I can remember. Uh, my grandfather taught a college course on Lewis and Tolkien. Um, so I've, from a very young age, I've had, I've kind of been ha- had an awareness of it. And uh, about my... Uh, early teens or so, I became a huge fanatic when I read the books all the way through for myself, and they've really had a tremendous impact uh, on my life. In fact, the older I get, the more I kind of appreciate just how big of an impact they had. So when I heard, you know, a few years later, or longer than that, really, that, oh, there, someone's developing a, a movie of the, about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course, the first reaction is cool, and then the second reaction is Oh no! I hope they <laughs> hope I hope they get it right. It's kind of both of those things simultaneously, and so I found that I kind of felt like a protective parent. I felt I really wanted them to do it right, and a lot of people are going to go see this movie, and this is going to be their only exposure to anything Narnia or C.S. Lewis. I want it to be a quality film, number one, most importantly, and um, like something that's worthy of the title, "The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe," and. Um, and respects the essence of what I love about the book. I totally get you've got to make a movie. Lewis was not writing a screenplay. If he was writing a screenplay, there are things he would have done differently. And we're making a movie now. So we have to, to do what we have to, There's no point in doing this if we're not going to make a good movie. So I get that. But respects the essence of what I love about the book uh, in the uh, in the first place. Um, so um, I guess that'd be kind of my history leading up to the movie. You want me to go a little further, or how far should I go? Uh, that that's fine. Do you remember your first uh, viewing of this film, and what did you think? What did you think of it then, and how have your thoughts evolved uh, over the years? Yeah, uh, I mean, it was about four years of of anticipation for me, from when I heard they were making it to when it finally came out. Following it, you know, on NarniWeb.com, just following it every step of the way. Uh, and of course, there's no way it's really gonna live up to that. And I think I went into that knowing that there's no way it's gonna live up to all that. But I walked out feeling, uh, I mean simultaneously disappointed and relieved um relieved that it certainly wasn't the when you hear oh disney's making a narnia movie it was really wasn't really any of the things that come into your mind that it could be or uh, on the that it wasn't the disaster you thought it might be but it definitely wasn't uh i thought it, it's a very safe movie i think when you look at all the different uh um ages and audiences it was trying to please it kind of 
pleased everyone a little bit, which actually is, I guess it's kind of an accomplishment, but um, I walked out of it and I think still pretty much feel that way. Uh, it's been about, what, 12 years later? No, wow, more like 14 years later, right? I'm trying to do math here. Woo! Um, feel about the same way that uh, there's a few things about it that I'm sure we'll get into. I really love. There's a few things about it that I thought they really messed up. But for the most part, I think it's just fine. Uh, when I think about the, you know, kind of the tsunami of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter inspired stuff that came out in the mid late 2000s, I think of this as, oh, this is one of the ones that's actually kind of good. Um, so I don't. Yeah, it's, I, it's not Aragon. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it doesn't. Um, yeah, basically, it's fine, is my impression to the line of the Witch in the Wardrobe. And what about Prince Caspian? Then Prince Caspian, uh, whereas Wardrobe is mostly fine, Prince Caspian is about half really, really solid and about half kind of bad, actually. It kind of <laughs> flu- it kind of fluctuates back and forth. Um, so it's a little hard to choose, in that sense, which one I like more. But overall, I think I'll go with Caspian. Um, okay. Just because I, I just enjoy it more as a movie. They did make more, a lot, far more changes from the book. Some of them I thought were really good changes and made a lot of sense, and some of them uh, didn't make any sense and demonstrate a lack of understanding of the material and didn't work for the movie either. Um, but uh, I just find that I enjoy it a lot more as a, as a movie, and I get a little more emotionally involved in Prince Caspian, whereas Wardrobe, I'm watching it going, oh, this is kind of cool. This is a neat story. I guess the characters are fine, but I'm not really getting as emotionally involved in it. So overall, uh, I probably like Caspian a little bit more. Okay. And uh, what about you, James? What's your history with this movie? So uh, like I said on the last episode, there was just a lot of hype surrounding uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe going into it. And me being like, you know, really young, I think I was like 10 at the time. Um, I, I absolutely adored it, obviously. And so it wasn't shortly after that before we found out they were making the next one. And again, I, I loved the first, so I went in incredibly excited, watched it with the exact same group of people. Um, and I think that I, at the time, loved it probably even more than Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, I was also, you know, at, at a young age where like the fact that the battle was even bigger and there's like giant trees and giant water gods and stuff like it was just incredible to watch on the on the big screen um and we never actually owned it though like we did with the wardrobe uh and so i think i only saw it after the initial theater viewing i think i only saw it maybe two or three times uh and it was all probably within the first year or two of it coming out um, over at my cousin's house because I just I go over there all the time and they owned it and so we would watch it a couple times and then probably after that initial two or three or one or two years following its release I don't think I had actually seen it since this most or this most recent rewatch um, and so in my mind I didn't I didn't have the same nostalgic connection to it as I did with the first one and so over the years whenever my brain wanders to Narnia, I think fondly on wardrobe and they're like, oh yeah, I watched Caspian. I remember really liking that. I, I don't really remember much about it, but I remember really enjoying it. And that's kind of been what it, the space it's occupied in my mind since. Okay. Um, so I, I remember we got to see this in theaters. I have a very clear memory of sitting next to my brother and basically the, throughout the entire film whispering, hey, they changed that. That was added. That wasn't in the book. That was in the book. And I was probably a very terrible you know, seatmate. I do remember quite liking it, and it uh, it was one of those films that you kind of it was since it was Narnia in a you know Christian family it was one of those safe movies that we could watch a lot. So, and I also remember I had it I had like a, an old iPod Classic. Those are beautiful things. Um, 
And it was one of the movies I had on there, so I would watch it over and over again. And I, I do remember like just coming to really appreciate the scale and uh, just the way Adamson directed you know this movie, the scale, the scale he brought to it, the the way he put together action scenes. This would be kind of at the time I was getting interested in film, and so to you know just to have that and just to be able to, you know when watching on a tiny screen, you're able to just see the entire frame and see everything. And it was kind of an interesting way of, of, of you know breaking down a movie, and so this one became kind of special to me for that. And I I think I did I always like Line of the Wardrobe, but I think this one has been also as well. I I like this one a bit more than Line of the Wardrobe, Wardrobe, probably mostly for the you know bigger, badder, and things like that. Um, so just kind of moving into the main discussion. Uh, one thing I do want to talk about that I forgot we've kind of missed on in our last episode on Line of the Wardrobe, Wardrobe that I want to get your thoughts on, Brian. Um. Uh, Quite often when people talk about the Narnia series or the Narnia films, they kind of just, there's something very dismissive about, oh, it's, it's allegory. And Tolkien said allegory is bad, so therefore it's bad. And, like, you know, allegory is obviously a very huge part in the Narnia series. How, 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 do, you, how do you view that criticism? Do you think that's a legitimate criticism? Or, uh, like, it, do you think allegory is by nature a weakness in storytelling? Well, first off, I mean, uh, Narnia is not allegory by the strictest definition of the word. That's how L- Lewis put it. Uh, if, you, if it's an allegory, then everything in it has to have uh, uh, something one-to-one that it uh, that it represents, basically. Like, for example, what does Caspian represent? Mm-hmm. Nothing. He's, he's just a character in the story. Or what does the lamppost represent? Nothing. It's just an element in the story. Um, but... Uh, one of the things... Now, the story began with uh, pictures in Lewis's head. He, he certainly did not begin with, I want to tell a story with Christian symbolism. That 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 worked its way in later, very organically. Um, but uh, as far as... I mean, all I know is that I read the book, uh, read the books, and uh, I did not uh, know that there was Christian symbolism in it, at least not very much. Uh, I, I got involved in the stories um because of the plot because of the characters because of the atmosphere in the world that c.s lewis created i knew that i got very emotionally involved in it i knew it resonated with me Mm -hmm. uh it's only been upon reflection that i kind of have some sense as to why that is um i don't think i think that it can be a uh but as far as having symbolism in a movie i think or any story it can be a problem if it's a distraction or if it's only there because it's a symbol where you go you see you see what that is you see what that is Great. Um, but uh, I don't believe that Lewis does that. I think the things that are in Narnia work because they uh, because he's writing a story. Uh, and then if you want to dissect, but why is the story working? Why is it making you feel that way? Then you can have a discussion about the symbolism he's uh, that he's put in there. But at the end of the day, if the story works, the story works. I don't think that uh, uh, it makes a story good or bad. Yeah, I like how you said that. Like I... I think if someone who had never even heard of Christianity read most of these read these books, I think they would you know find a very entertaining and satisfying you know fantasy series. Yeah, yeah. I agree pretty much with with everything y'all guys are saying. Uh, I think that's pretty much the litmus test. I always approach films that whether they're like straight pure allegories or movies that that uh or stories or you know any any medium uh, that just uses symbolism in general is does it work without any sort of knowledge of these external things? And if it does, then I think trying to use allegory or symbolism as, as a critique, just it doesn't hold up because clearly the story works without knowledge of, of these things. And at that point, it just, it just seems to be unnecessarily like dogmatic. Yeah. It is kind of 
disheartening how glib people are in dismissing these stories simply because there's elements of Christianity. And it's like, you know, that's, that's the, it came out of the 1950s, you know, Western culture is so shaped by Christianity. If any kind of, you know, any kind of philosophy that thing that the story was going to have would be more Judeo-Christian. So it's, it seems very shallow because I'm, you know, I'm watching uh, through the, the Avatar, the last airbender series, and it's like very strongly Buddhist and no one complains about that. Uh, it's just, it's just a weird criticism to me. Well, if I, if I can understand, like I, mean, I was just saying how, like if it's, um, if you pick up on a symbol and usually if you pick up on a symbol, it probably means you're not very involved in the story. Um, it, it probably means it's just not really working for you. So um, I can see where, I mean, like the fact that, you know, Aslan is essentially the Jesus of this world. That's not really all that subtle. I could see where uh, if someone, they see that and then now they're more focused on that than they are the story. I think it's valid to say, well, I got distracted by it and it's annoyed me. That, that wasn't the experience I personally had. But um, but sometimes I'll be watching a movie and maybe there's a as another example, it's not exactly symbolism, but maybe there's a layer of or maybe there's a, a something that's analogous to some kind of political controversy or something. And I get annoyed by that because I was involved in the story and now I'm thinking about that. Now, if you do it in a subtle way where, oh, maybe later I go, oh, I see what they were doing there. That might be fine. That's one thing. Um, but if it's really, really obvious and in my face, well, now I'm thinking about that. I'm not thinking about the story. I just want to get lost in that. So that wasn't the experience I had with the Chronicles of Narnia, but I can understand where if somebody, um, if they weren't involved in the story, that, that they could they could get distracted by that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, moving into the film itself, it's I, I, looking at the book. I find this just a kind of a fascinating idea for a sequel. You know, you have this very charming and whimsical, you know, fairy tale with the first film, the first book. And then Lewis comes to the second book. I'm just going to destroy all that. We're going to come back to the world. Everything you loved go- is gone. The magic is literally dead. And, you know, the, the the world has been taken over by this militaristic regime that has stamped on everything we love. Here, kids, have fun. Um, and, I, I and you know, coming with the filmmakers now coming into it, I think they, they, they took that notion and really tried to run with it. You know, whether, whether that was out of faithfulness to the book or just, to try and grab the Lord of the Rings audience, who knows? But I think they really tried to, you know, take this film, this story, this film in a much darker, more mature direction. Um, and uh, how, how successful uh, do you think they would have, they were in this area as far as trying to tell a more mature story that, than they did with Lionel in the Wardrobe? Um, I think they, um, I mean, I, that's what they're trying to do, and they're trying to have you come back into this movie expecting The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe 2, and it's really not. It's actually really different, and it does feel like things happen in this movie that you didn't feel like could happen in the world um, of the first movie, and so I think they're reasonably successful, and that's my, my, the first half is my favorite, where they're setting up where there's kind of the surprise that where's the Narnia I remember from the other movie? Where's Mr. Tumnus? Where are the beavers? Um and what's happened to everybody? And and who are these pirate guys? What what happened? Um, and I think they do a pretty good job with the sense of loss when the the Pevensies discover the treasure chamber and find their weapons, and it's all you know, kind of. That's a great moment of almost like stepping back in time. Uh, when I actually like the moment where Lucy um, sees the bear and assumes it's a talking bear. I understand there's some reasons that doesn't quite work. Maybe they didn't quite set up talking animals well enough in the first movie in some ways, but. Uh, but I, I like her that she ends up kind of looking stupid and looking kind of naive. And I think that 
um, she was expecting it to be like the old Narnia. Um, and the dream she has where for a moment it looked, Narnia looks the way it did 1300 years ago. Uh, and then it cuts back to the reality and now the colors are all so different. Um, so they do, I think they do a really good job with the sense of loss and I, well, I really want the old Narnia to come back. And then when it gets into the second half of the movie, I don't think it does a very good job on the joy when it finally does come back and the payoff isn't very satisfying, but the, the, the initial, the first like 30 or 45 minutes, I think are good at setting up that sense of loss. Yeah. I, I, and I, I was thinking about what that, what that would be with, uh, how would you uh, cinematically show, you know, that the joy at Narnia's return later on, like there's a whole chapter in the book, which is just like crazy, joyful things happening. You feel, it, it's kind of mm-hmm. weird and random in the book, but I, I kind of don't like it, but I understand what its purpose is. Um, and like that's, that would be very difficult to show cinematically. And they do have scenes of celebration, but I think the big thing that's missing in in the joy the, the joy of a returning Narnia is that I don't think Caspian, the character in this movie, has the longing for things of old, has the longing for Narnia yeah. that the character mm-hmm. did in the movie. Like I was trying to like, kind of dissect his character arc, and it seemed to me one of more identity and self doubt, like um. You know, Mir- Miraz is challenging him. You know, you know, you calling him a coward. He has, you know, it seems you might actually have the makings of a Telmarine king after all. And then you have his his uh, scene with um, with his uh, Doctor Cornelius, where he talks about you know, uh, you you, you have the, the opportunity to become the most noble contradiction in history, the Telmarine who saved Narnia, and ultimately Caspian's big moment is saying not after Miraz says that line to him, he says, you know, not one like you. So, mm-hmm. but I the thing is, I don't ever feel the film sets up. A real danger of him becoming, a uh, you know, a stereotypical evil Telmarine. Yeah, the, the the closest thing I can come up with is at the night raid. It's uh, he he gets all angry and he's maybe he's going to kill Miraz. Um, and, and he does like kind of impulsively go off mission and he shows a lot of, of anger there. And so it's oh, what kind of king could he become? But generally, you're right. It doesn't. It, it feels like a setup that doesn't have, or it feels like a payoff that doesn't have much of a setup. Yeah, just about um the initial portrayal of of a Narnia that's different. Um, I guess one of the benefits I had in not having seen it uh, in so long, and I, I've read the books. Um, I loved them as a kid, but it's been since I was a child since I've read them. And so I had very little memory of what the actual plot was. And so, so little that I actually forgot the, about the, t- the huge time jump and the fact, like really the, the general plot. And I was watching, I watched both films back to back with my sister. And, uh, I, I would say that the way they portray this like loss of majesty works really well for me because it evoked a very strong reaction. Like as they look at the ruins of Care Paravel, because of how much I really like Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe definitely has flaws in my eyes, um, and there are things that I wish would have been done differently. But as a whole, I'm I'm still very positive on the film. Um, and so seeing the ruins of Care Paravel and hearing, you know, Lucy talk about, you know, the beavers and Mr. Tumnus, they're all gone. Like, it really did get a, uh, an emotional reaction from me. So I'm like, man, we, we left the film and it was just such a delightful, fantastical world that, like, I, I feel like I was um, mirroring the kids' emotions throughout. And I think that's what a good script does, where... When we're back on the beach, I'm excited. We hear that that uh, great music from uh, Grex and Williams back, and it just instantly pulls me back into the world. 
And then, you know, the music kind of leaves that sense of wonder and we find the ruins and we discover what's going on and how all the Narnians are have been driven in the woods. And it's just, it's, it's almost shocking. Um, and so I, I really appreciate the portrayal of that. And I, I think it does a good job of, um, of pulling you through all the right emotions it's trying to get. Um, as for like the, the return of joy at the end, um, I think it, one of, one of the things that doesn't work super well for me, um, is it feels a bit rushed where we kind of, we have a lot of the conclusion just happening literally seconds after the end of the battle and we're just kind of on the seashore and things are, are better and we, we jump from there to the, the end and the farewell to everybody. Um, I'm also the person who absolutely loves like the 30 minute conclusion of Return of the King. So I'm, I'm always okay <laughs> with just lengthy, um, lengthy endings. Mm-hmm. But it does feel like we, we don't really get enough of that joy. You know, we may not need an entire cinematic recreation of, of that chapter from the book, but just time to be able to live in the joy. I think one of the things that would have benefited from a lengthier ending and celebration would be getting to see Caspian interact with a Narnia that is no longer outlawed. Because all of his interactions with them has been under, like, this wartime, this seeing them... Um, conflicted and in hiding and I think it would have been nice to have gotten a scene of just him being able to experience this joyful gleeful kind of Narnia um, that we saw kind of return in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe but really we just we move from the the climax and the battle pretty quickly into an exit from Narnia and so I'm like Caspian's just you know okay we won we'll see you later and we don't really get to get an idea of, of how he relates to Narnia and how he plans on ruling it other than like the obvious, oh, he's going to be a noble ruler. So I, I just wish we had more time. Yeah, I think the real issue with uh, the ending for me is that it's uh, it's just such a military victory. Um, in the, like compared to the book, for example, really they win over the hearts of the Telmarine people, where even the Telmarine people they don't love Miraz any more than the Narnians, and and, and many of them are delighted that um, that that um, the old days have come back. And to me, like the moment, like in the book where um, Aslan is going through the town and, and healing people, and the boys get turned into pigs. There's some weird stuff that happens, but um, that the idea of like maybe in the movie would have been better to. I just think it would have been a lot more interesting to why don't we set up some characters that are under Miraz's rule. Who I know we have Glazelle, but let's just set up some characters where it's clear that this guy's a tyrant. They hint at it, and then when the Narnians come, they really win because the Narnians win them over. It's not because they just beat the Telmarines with their swords and that's it. This is a, a thirty-minute battle where they just beat. They just they bring out their swords and the river god comes out and crushes the bridge and and that's it. And to me, that's just. Uh, um, I guess I find that a lot less interesting than just winning over the hearts of the Telmarine people. Oh. Being someone who absolutely adores cinematic battles, I'm not sure I'm willing to sacrifice the battle, but I definitely understand what you're saying. I guess a bit of that would be the River God. I feel like, you know, the the Narnians are basically on the verge of defeat, then Aslan roars, and literally, like, the magic, all of the magic that the Telmarines, you know, uh, stamped, you know, stamped on and, and drove out of the land is kind of returning with a vengeance to defeat them like the river god is literally like the the magic of narnia rising up and 
crushing Sepespian. And it's like, you know, it's kind of just this final um, majestic return. I think if they had better established what the heck Dryads and Naiads are in the previous, you know, in the Uh film and the previous film as well, which I've never been terribly happy with how they showed them. And I get it. They're weird creatures and you don't want to turn them into ants or anything, but I feel like if we better understood what they, what they were before that their return would be so much more uh, meaningful. Yeah. I guess, uh, in the, I guess my issue with with like that idea of, well, the old days are coming back and fighting back. I think that, what we're seeing, uh, like Miraz is a tyrant, and the fact that it's such a military victory, well, now we get to take over Narnia because we have more swords than you, or whatever. Uh, it kind of seems to water down what the movie is saying a little bit. That Caspian's going to be a different kind of king. Like to me, it just looks like Caspian showed up and had more swords, and that was it, just like Miraz. Um, so I think to spend, I'm not saying we can't have a battle, but to spend so much time on it and make that the punchline, make that the reason they really won. Um, kind of waters down what the movie is is doing, I think. And 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 the book spends more time, like the River God says, you know, tells Astan, loose my chains. And there's a lot more discussion about uh, uh, the trees and how no one's heard from them in a while. And there's some of that in the book, but there's more of that going on in the movie. Or, 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 or sorry, there's some of that in the movie. There's a lot more of that going on in the book. So you get the sense that things are simply returning to the way they're really supposed to be. It doesn't feel like these two different forces, and one likes red and one likes blue, and blue just happened to be stronger. It feels like no, Narnia is returning to the way it's supposed to be. The movie is just a military victory, and Aslan was stronger, so he won. Well. I mean, it's it's. I don't know how much a military victory because the the whole the whole story has been Peter and you know Caspian to a lesser extent, you know, relying on themselves, trying you know trying through military means just to to win. You know, Peter t- here thinking he has to prove himself, he has to defeat Miras, he has to take back the land, and ultimately it it isn't about them, it isn't about their army, it's about Aslan's return, it's about you know the return of the magic from the land. It, it, I don't know if it's fair entirely to call it a military victory because they were they were being they were in the process of being defeated before Aslan came and you know brought Narnia back to life and and, and but looking at the book it kind of was they were in a pitched battle and then the the trees arrived and the the Tumbrines basically panicked and laid down their arms pretty much yeah and then and all the all the emphasis is on the fact that. Um, Aslan and the girls go through Narnia and they win over the hearts of the Telmarine people. Um, I mean, you could say that technically speaking, well, it's because Aslan showed up w- w- with the trees and saved the day, but that's after like 25 minutes of, of watching them, of watching them kill the Telmarines with their swords. Like what the lasting image I have of the end of the movie is uh, military might. It's not any kind of um, reaching out to the other side or winning over the hearts of the Telmarine people. Like, you can break it down and say, well, technically it was Aslan, but after, like, 30 or 40 minutes of fighting, that's not the image I walk away with. That's not the emotional impact I walk away with. I say the Narnians won because they beat him with their swords. And I just don't find that as interesting or it doesn't really resonate with me as much. Interesting. Like, I, I really don't, I, I don't... I don't feel that at the end. That's, that's interesting, though. Um, James, anything to add to that? No, I mean, I get... I get what he's saying. Where, it, to me, it doesn't it doesn't shape how I think of Caspian. You know, I, I don't I don't have that fear that be, due to his due to the battle being won, you know, through physical means and this that that there's gonna oh there's nothing that separates him. Um, however, I I would have 
liked to have seen a little bit more from what we saw in the book of of what you're saying with um just putting more more time into the telmarine people i think the movie kind of made that harder on themselves because of the night raid on the castle one of the things that i i don't know if this is i mean i don't think i was meant to think this but for some reason what was going on in my head during that raid was i mean they're kind of killing the telmarines without a you know, without hesitation, um, whenever they invade the castle, and I never got. Of course, they hesitate to kill the cat. They only, unfortunately, they only tie up the cat. They don't <laughs> yeah, kill the cat. Thank go. God. So they're not heartless <laughs> monsters. Uh, but you know, it. I never really got the feeling that every single person there was complicit in in the crimes of Miraz, and we. we I mean, we're being shown this kind of d- dissension. The fact that there is a disagreement there. Um, I mean, even the, the king's wife, even Mears' wife doesn't know the extent of his, of his evils. And so you could go in the direction of the fact, like, yes, he's a tyrant. He doesn't really have the love of his people. And for them to witness the return of something like Narnia could be the victory they need. But whenever you have a scene where, like, they're just invading the castle and anything that picks up, I mean, for all we know, those guards... They, you know, they grew up on the stories that Narnia is, they're, they're monsters. They probably became the boogeymen to, uh, to these people growing up because it's been 1300 years. And so in their minds, they're just defending their castles from these monsters that are arriving from the forest. Um, (laughs) and so for the fact that the film just displays such a lengthy battle where they're just cutting down any Telmarine that picks up a sword you you make it more difficult for it to be like look they won the hearts of the people they're not all monsters like well i i don't think the movie wants us thinking that maybe they're not all monsters right now because the movie also just slaughtered a bunch of them without question yeah i I think the movie and that's one of the reasons sure they had them wear those masks uh they do they want them to be stormtroopers basically they want them to be these these facelit they want to not you don't want to have a sense of the army as having humanity Mm mm-hmm and I would also say I do agree with a lot of what you're saying, James, somewhat. Uh, at the same time, we know that the night raid is supposed to be a bad idea. We know that Peter should not be doing this. Um, so that it's defensible in that way that, well, we know the Narnians are doing something bad and that, that, that there's consequences and they have to pay for it later. So I, I picked up on that. I think the only reason that that doesn't really um affect the way that i view that scene is because i feel like the movie is telling us it's a bad idea strategically as opposed to a bad idea morally um you know like we we need to bunker down here we shouldn't you know it feels like the, the the bad idea was just because of how um immediate and and brash it was not really because Hey, let's try a diplomatic solution. It was well, to, to to be fair, the final two lines before we cut to Griffin swooping over Mirror's castle is have you forgotten who really defeated the white witch and Peter saying, "I think we've waited on Aslan long enough." Then cut. If I'm not sure, sure it's a direct cut to the Griffin swooping down on the castle. Yeah, so the real mistake here is that uh, Peter is not waiting on Aslan basically. Um, and since, since we're on Peter, um, one of the things uh, that Marcus and McFeely and Adamson were trying to <laughs> were trying to go for um, was what would it be like for someone who grew up, who became a king, who ruled a land, and you know lived to adulthood to suddenly come back and they're a child, no one takes them seriously, and they have they have absolutely no importance. 
And so we have Peter who essentially when he comes back to Narnia, he's like horrified at the thought that anyone in Narnia would think he, he, he that he abandoned them. He wants, he's really trying hard to win this, you know, to pr- essentially you know, prove that he, that he really was a good King and all that. Um, and I, I think that's an interesting idea. Like Lewis is very sparse with characters. Um, I don't, that's not bad. They're very, you know, they're very thin children's books, but it does, it does make it difficult when you're adapting a story. You, you, you want your characters to have journeys, to have arcs. And most, a lot of the characters in the books have either very subtle, very, very small ones, or don't even have them at all. And so I, I, I actually think it's a pretty smart adaptive choice to ask that question as a screenwriter, but execution wise, um, I think he's just, he just comes across as a spoiled brat, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it was you, James, who were talking about, you know, am I emotionally tracking with the movie? Am I feeling the things I'm supposed to be feeling, essentially, is one of the basic questions. And I think with Peter, we're really not. We kind of wanted to just get over it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think William Mosley is probably a little better that here than he, he was in Line of the Wars in the Wardrobe. I don't think he was bad in Line of the Wars in the Wardrobe. But I, I really, I, well, I it, 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 there's could... a lot more asked of him here, and acting-wise, I'll say that. I think when he's quieter, especially when he's showing regret, like this, the shot, the scene where he looks back and sees all his troops dying, like that's a really powerful moment. I think as he gets over, he gets quieter, he gets more thoughtful, he gets better. But I, I guess I'm probably going to blame Adam Sin for this, just because for not pulling it back. Like, like you say, you're, you're playing this way too hard. Your know, lines like that explains it. You're mistaken. You just you just want to slap the kid. And yeah, I th- I, agree. I think. I think this is a good idea. Like if it had been played more subtle, played more like it just a, a, a lower, more underlying anger and maybe in pride rather than such a childlike thing. Uh, I think it could have been successful. I, like I don't hate the idea, but yeah, I don't think it entirely works. Yeah. I think the, the basic idea first off that is in the book where Peter and the others are trying to, uh, you know, they've come back and they're trying to do things on their own. They're trying to find Caspian and Lucy says, come on, let's follow Aslan. They're just like, no, let's not. Um, that, mm-hmm. That's all That's all in the book. And they've taken that and they've tried to, because of the way they've had, to, they've restructured the story, um, they kind of have to make Peter's arc take a little bit longer, uh, dramatically speaking. Um, so that's all rooted in the book. Um, and even the idea of, which the book doesn't really do at all, of, well, what would it be like to be a king for a while and then go back to being a kid? That's really not in the book at all. I don't, but yeah, that seems like, well, that could be a potentially interesting idea. And maybe you could even play with, and they kind of do this, but Peter's coming back and he thinks, oh, this is the Narnia just like it was 1300 years ago. And I'm going to come in and be a king just like it was before. And it's going to be awesome. And then the shock of finding out what Narnia is different, like that totally mm-hmm. parallels what we should be feeling um, in, in the story. But the, the, way, the way they just come out, the way it comes off is he's just really, really prideful and is it, it emphasizes the things that, of course, I can't relate to. I've never been a king and they had to go back to being a kid. And they do it in a way that feels kind of alien to me. There's not this, like, I feel like I know what it's like to come back to a familiar place and, oh, it's different than I remember because years have gone by. Every time I go home to where I grew up, that's what I feel. Like, oh, wow, it, it's different than what I remember. They could have played with that, but they chose to emphasize the things that I can't possibly relate to. Like, what's it like to be a king and go back? I don't know what that feels like. Yeah, I think part of my problem is, and this this felt all the more um, in my face because of watching the movies, literally just back to back. Um, he does not feel like the same character from the first film, and I I think I, I know obviously his his arc is much more pronounced 
in this one than it was in the first one. Um, and we're probably we're meant to be annoyed with him more so here than we were in the first one. But I think there's ways to do that without completely losing the growth of of the previous film. And I feel like I, I hated Peter in this more than I hated Edmund in the first one. Um, and it just it doesn't feel it doesn't feel oh, cause, well because because we identified with Edmund in the first one exactly and and uh, yeah that's you know to your point where this what they choose to focus on and I think they could have even chosen the same thing that they chose to focus on um, the aspect of like what what's it like to return to a place that you used to rule um, and 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 still worked it's just again it just it doesn't feel like an organic continuation it feels like he's completely regressed as a character. Um, and you know, we were teased as you know, we're teased a bit about who, who he is now, what kind of person he is. And it just feels like so abrupt, um, with the fight in the, the subway where, you know, like, you know, uh, he bumped into me and tried to make me apologize. Then I hit him. Like would, would returning to the, the real world after ruling place really turn you into like <laughs> such an insufferable jerk? It it just it doesn't feel like this is what would happen. I get it if we want to kind of draw attention to flaws that weren't brought up in the first one, and we're gonna focus on on the way like the different aspects of Peter's character that needs to that just needs where where he needs to grow up. But this just felt so exaggerated, and I I just feel like this whole this level of entitlement that he's he's mm-hmm. showing throughout just doesn't feel not like a natural continuation of who is especially considering like this is this is the kind of king that edmund wanted to be at the beginning of lion the witch in the wardrobe where the idea of a king was just so um you know it, tantalizing to him because i i could rule over peter i could get the respect of all these people and that seems to be the desire that Peter has. Like, I was a king. People followed my rules. Here's this wannabe king with Caspian. Like, no, everybody fall in line and obey me. It just, it, it does not feel like Peter before. And I think there's, a, again, I just, I think there's a way to draw out his flaws and, and show that he's more flawed than we thought in the first one. But in a way that doesn't just feel like a, a total betrayal of, of who he was previously. I think because it's so because it's so heavy-handed, I think the overriding feeling is that you know this is a movie about uh, longing for the old days to return. But you look at Peter is like, do we really want the old days back? Because uh, like Peter is really a problem for a lot of this. I mean, Caspian even says it was it, it was a mistake me blowing the horn at all at one point. Um, so I think that kind of undermines what the movie's trying to do with we want the old days to return. The fact that Peter becomes, I know he, he has a little journey in the book for sure, but the fact that my overriding memory is like maybe Caspian was almost better off. Uh, I, th- I think that's a problem, not just for an adaptation, but with what the movie's doing, with wanting the old days of Narnia to return. The fact that Peter is such a problem kind of undermines that. Hmm. Um, however, I, I do love that the film brings serious consequences for his arrogance, for Caspian's arrogance. Like, my biggest for problem Peter's arrogance, so, you mean, right? Well, well, Caspian to a lesser extent, um, but mainly Peter. Um, but like my problem with so many family films and children's films is that the characters they do stupid things, they make mistakes, and there's no consequences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's not the case here. Like this film, you make a mistake, a hundred people die. Like hundred of your friends, they die and they die horribly, and you have to live with that, and you have to keep going, and you have to you know, and 
I really like that the film had the guts to show that. And I think it's very powerfully displayed. And I think going forward, I do like Peter's character a lot more. And there's one, th- one really good thing that I think ha- having the castle raid in the film that it uh, kind of a thing it brought that I didn't have in the book is that with Peter now challenging in single combat, this is like him saying, you know, I, I lost these men. I, I, you know, I made a mistake. I messed up. And now I'm going to have to, you know, put my own life and body on the line rather than you know, having my troops fight. I'm going to have to do this myself. You know, it's going to be, it's going to be on my head now rather than the people that I lost before. And I think there's a real nobility to that, you know, that choice of going to single combat now. Like, like that is kind of um, displaying the growth he has. And they're definitely trying to, they really try to beat up Peter to make you feel bad for him. To the point where <laughs> even that seems a little exaggerated. Just, oh, they're, oh, he's groaning and oh, now Miraz is stepping on his hand and now, oh, now his arm's dislocated. And I think they're, they're trying so hard to beat him up because they know that you're really annoyed at him at this point. <laughs> I, I, I like that a lot, actually. Uh, especially when he's, you know, he's finally he's talking to Andrew, you know, you, you've always been there for me. <laughs> he just like tw- twists his arm. <laughs> Save it for later. Yeah. Um, I, just to to talk about that night raid. Despite my my complaint earlier about the fact that like we're being told that the Narnians, you know, just represent a more noble way of living, and like their first act after finding a new leader is like raiding a castle and killing everybody who has a sword. Despite that, I think the scene itself is expertly done. Like with staking it out with the Griffins, um, and and following the mice and everything, and the battle itself is really well done. And I, maybe the, the, the strongest emotional reaction I probably have across uh, either of these films is the defeat in this scene. Um, I'm really surprised this movie got away with the PG. Like, it's kind of astounding <laughs> mm-hmm. to me. There, I, I do, I think one thing that Gabe and I both share is, is that kind of love of a film's willingness to show consequence. Because so often it's just... Like, you know, a slap on the wrist and we'll move on. Um, and it, I thought it was displayed really beautifully in, in Aslan's uh, sacrifice in the first one. And here, where they have the shots where, you know, the camera's pretty much on the ground, just m- looking up, moving past all of the, the, the bodies. And then the moment of Peter turning back and looking at them. And you've got the one centaur, yeah. like, who we saw before, just staring at him. They hold on to that shot for a long time, and it's kind of heartbreaking. Like, I I did not remember it, and it you know as a kid, I don't know how how it affected me. I, I don't really have a whole lot of memories of, of some of the anything really outside of the final battle, but I feel like it probably affected me more now than than as a kid. Just as as a leader having to stand there knowing that you happen to be fast enough to make it out. And there's nothing else. It's not like what's done is done. They're dead. Move on. It's they're still alive. I'm having to watch them just get mowed down as I'm safe. And I do like the fact that Peter is forced to reckon with that. I I'm annoyed that they don't force him to kind of stew in that a bit longer and just humble himself to the point of shutting up for a little bit because like the first thing that happens when they get back is you know he argues with with caspian and still has that little you know sense of entitlement mm-hmm. and they draw swords on each other well, yeah, it, it, kind it, of that, ma- macho man it thing. feels a bit dramatic well, i i kind of 
what I wish happened um, was was that he was just forced to just be alone in his thoughts and you know we've got the the thoughts of you know him or his, the line of him saying like maybe we've waited for Aslan for too long just have him sit by himself thinking you know Aslan is still not here I tried with my might and it didn't work I don't know what to do I don't want to surrender things to Caspian I still think it has to be me but I don't know what to turn to like focus on his sense of just desperation after the defeat and if we, we focus on that sense of desperation and loss then the moment of the white witch reaching out to him means a lot more because as it is in the film i don't buy him being tempted or lured by by her reaching out the hand i think it's supposed to be some kind of mind control or something because both him and caspian kind of like this kind of go slack all of a sudden See if if that's what it is. Yeah, the, the, the whole yeah the whole. I don't really buy the whole scene. Really, I totally agree. Uh, I I love the moment you're talking about with, with the, the the night raid. Uh, that's where yeah Peter looks back. I think that's really powerful. Um, that this one of the most powerful moments in the movie, and it's the kind of moment where you went. I didn't think again the rules that were set up in the first movie. I didn't think this kind of thing could happen. And that's Peter and the audience really realizing this is a different Narnia, and the old Narnia has to be restored. Um. And then, but the, and um, then the white witch scene. Yeah, to me, it just feels really forced. Like you know, you can't do this alone. And yeah, it does almost seem there's some kind of mind control going on, as the sense you get, which isn't that dramatic when you know it's just. That's one of the reasons they took out the Turkish delight out of, or the enchanted Turkish delight out of the first movie. They don't say it's enchanted because hmm. they wanted to emphasize the fact that it's Edmund's choice. Now, of course, we know it's his choice in the book because we can hear his inner thoughts. But in the movie, it would just seem like he's being mind controlled, and that's not as powerful. Um, so yeah, I can see what you're getting at there. We're on a character level that scene, and there's a lot of other levels that scene. Uh, visually, the White Witch scene I think is very impressive. That's a cool um, effect. But like, like, like the ice going up, the 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 visual of what the ice builds up, it, it actually covers Aslan. That's a great cinematic moment. But overall, dramatically, it feels really kind of shoehorned in there, and it really doesn't feel like it's needed. I don't think it accomplished anything that I think they accomplished what they needed to accomplish in the night raid. They did not need to. They did not need to follow it up with the White Witch. Yeah, that's an interesting thing about with adaptation. Like you get the sense that whether or not they fully understand the thematics of this of that, that Lewis is going for, that Adam Sandler and Marcus McFeely they, they they like they like these books a lot, and they're really trying to get in as much material from the books. Like like a scene like that. Normally, the low point would be after Marriage's raid, but since they want to have that scene from the book. They have to, you know, put in another, you know, crushing disappointment for, and failure for Caspian and Peter um, before the final battle. And it does feel like it makes the film a little oddly structured. And another scene that I think about would be uh, the scene where they heal Reepicheep. Like, everyone who's read the book wants to see that. However, you've just finished the battle and you have like a whole scene with this minor little character, like a three minute mm -hmm. scene that which, who's just like. It's kind of it's it's fun and cute and I I, I like it you know, as a book fan but I'm kind of wondering what like movie pe like people who just saw the movie would think watching like the Reaper Sheep scene after the battle like like what is this and it's kind of a real difficulty of adapting a book where you you want to put the stuff in there um and, and like I, I I'm not saying that to bash that scene I like that scene but well yeah it it definitely has a lot more humor to it in the movie in the book there is still a sense of nobility and there's still a sense of you know when when they carry Reepy Cheep over and in the books it's something like, you know, all that was left of Reepy Cheep. There's a sense of real sadness and a sense of real loss there, even though he's, they do play him, but, you know, kind of for humor. 
um, in the book, there's still a sense of real loss, and there's something on the line here. Uh, in the movie, he's you know, uh, it just kind of feels like a farce. It doesn't feel like the threat or sense of loss is real. That's how I took it. So uh, I guess one last thing about the the White Witch scene is, you know, I that is a scene that I did remember from the book, and I'm like like you gave. I'm I'm glad. I'm always glad as a book fan to see uh, material from the book in the film. But I also, as as a fan of film, I want to make sure it works in the film as well. And I'll always choose what works for the film over just seeing it because it was in the book and I enjoyed it. Well, to be clear, that's... the 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 White Witch does not appear at all in the book. Um, there's a there's a very brief discussion where they talk about what if we brought. It's a fantastic dialogue scene where they're they're speculating about, um, like, well, what if we brought the White Witch back? We never find out. Well, could they have actually brought the White Witch back? Was that a real thing they could have done? We never find out about that. But there's a long scene where Nickerbrick basically reasons out. You know, maybe Aslan just died and never came back to life. Maybe the Pevensies, uh, just. Uh, I mean, did they even actually win? How, how much of this stuff is even true? Maybe we need, to, we, need, we need to turn to something else and reasons all this out. What's really cool, his logic is impeccable. Like, if I hadn't read the first book, maybe I'm reading this going, yeah, maybe Aslan just stayed dead. That actually makes a lot more sense. Um, so he really logically proves something that we know that, well, no, that, that's not actually what happened, though, even though it makes sense from that character's perspective. Um, so they do talk about bringing the White Witch back, but uh, th- they don't actually do it, though. Um, the movie chose it to be really... I need to... I think I've I've projected memories of the movie onto the book, then. <laughs> well, reread it. Obviously, I'm going to promote that. <laughs> I think for myself, you know, um, if if we could say, like, best case scenario is, is it, it is just excised from the film. Um, maybe second best case scenario, second best scenario would be that you find a way to make that scene work in the film more. And, and I guess that's where I was coming from with with my my desire to see Peter really forced to reckon with with the consequence. And we've already had the character of Nickabrick uh, talk about, like, hey, the White Witch was a thing, you know. And and like you, I, I do really like the, the visual of the, the ice appearing in front of Aslan. And I think that that works well with the whole, like, Peter thinking, like, well, maybe we've waited for Aslan long enough. And so I, I think if they played up the the desperation that Caspian and Peter both have of, like, what do we turn to? How do we win? We didn't win with might. Aslan's nowhere to be seen. Maybe this is an avenue we could consider um, I think that's the only way that you could have ma- done that scene and really made it work, um, because I just I don't I don't dislike the scene. I'll say that, but I also don't think it does wonders for the film either. Uh, as for the Reepicheep scene, this is this may be a scene where I I understand cinematically it doesn't. work. I think the transition into the scene is kind of terrible. It feels really shoehorned in. Yeah, like. It almost feels Monty Python esque, where we we have a scene of dialogue and then just out of nowhere we we you hear, hear these or like whatever. the 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 yeah these the the trumpets and stuff and then they just kind of walk into frame. It feels <laughs> so comedic and almost like bordering on parody, and and so the transition into the scene I think is is pretty bad. 
And I do think they pl- they definitely play up the humor a lot. However, I think my personal enjoyment of the character of Reaper Cheap here, I think Eddie Izzard is pretty fantastic voicing him. Um, this The moment in that scene, I was like, all right, I'll forgive what I consider to be objectively bad stuff in this scene because of this. Like, whenever they hold out their tails and like, we will not hold an honor that our king can't, or, or whatever the line is, I'm like, dang, these guys are awesome. Uh I, I enjoy it on a personal level, but it it really it's not handled in a way that really works for the film itself. So I, I still get a subjective level of enjoyment from the scene, um, but I think it could have been executed in a way where like I don't have to forgive the flaws of it. I, I agree. It feels out of place at that point in the movie. Uh, in the movie, yeah, I do agree. Yeah, we've been kind of bagging on the film. I I do like this movie quite a bit. Uh, so I do want to talk about some things that I quite enjoy. And um, I just love battle scenes. Like, I, I understand your thematic concerns with them, uh, Brian, but I just absolutely adore them. I think Andrew Adamson is very skilled at just building a, a you know, a battle sequence um that is like very clear and coherent. We understand the movements. And like we talked about in the previous episode how most battle scenes are just like, random shots of people whacking each other with swords until one side is all dead. I like that Adamson, he, he brings in like real tactics, real tactics, real strategy. There's a real ebb and flow to the sequences. And I just love that. You know, people say that they're over long. I think most battles are too short. So, <laughs> uh, and I, I think both the castle raid and the final battle are just, they just bring me a lot of joy just watching the way they play out and you know the, the way he puts in character moments and just like the way he's able to, give it there's like a real sense of like this is this is taking a long time this is exhausting there's real danger and like i'm i'm, I'm amazed at some of the stuff he got away with in a pg movie but i i think his his overall pacing with a film is is, is kind of weak but i think he's one of the better directors out there when it comes to crafting large-scale medieval battles because we don't get to see them a lot and they're so often disappointing and the some of the highlights of both the first two um narnia films are just getting to see these epic battles play out with a you know a real sense of time yeah i guess i don't find the battle particularly compelling uh, i thought the line the witch in the wardrobe one was pretty well done because i think it's much better paced um and uh there's a sense of uh like uh i think the character stuff is even stronger in that one uh with uh peter stepping up and the white witch wearing aslan's mane you know like there's some <laughs> there's in- interesting things uh, happening there. I mainly it just it doesn't go on too long, and you know, and Edmund gets stabbed, and that's Peter really stepping up and stepping into his role as the older brother. And there's there's things happening there. They're going to be emotionally involved in that. This battle, for the most part, feels like a screensaver to me. It's just okay. Aww. There's people swinging swords, and ah, cool. And now the ground's collapsing, and okay. But I'm really not emotionally invested. In fact, I'm kind. I mean, I'm kind of enjoying watching the violence, which I don't think is really a great thing. Like we should be concerned about the characters on screen. We should be. Oh no, what's going to happen? And this one's more. Oh, that was cool. Oh, that was cool. And it's nothing wrong with going. Oh, that was cool. There's certain there's moments in movies I like that do that. But uh, I guess I can do. Oh, that was cool for maybe like seven to 10 minutes you get into like a 20 or 30 minute battle then i'm starting to kind of look at my watch and go 
I'm not feeling it. Now, give me something like Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings. They spend so much of the movie setting up all the different characters, setting up what's at stake, setting up how the odds are against them. By the time it starts, I'm really gripping. I'm on the edge of my seat going, what is going to happen to these characters? What's going to happen to the people of Rohan? And that's, So that battle goes on for about 40 minutes, and I'm there. Uh, I'm so I'm really emotionally there with it. Whereas this one, I'm just not. I guess I'm just not feeling the emotional stakes as much. So it just kind of drones on. For me, um, I think I I'm definitely. I will say I'm definitely not as emotionally invested. Really, just in this film quite as much as the first one. Um, but I, I also don't feel like I'm emotionally absent either. Uh, I'm I'm there just enough to be able to enjoy the battle, and I also think. That and this is probably going to repeat some of the stuff that we said in the in the last uh, episode. But I think what staves off battle fatigue for me in this one is is what kind of did it as well in the first one. Of it isn't just two armies kind of banging into each other. Uh, again, he he takes the time to set up strategy, like the idea of uh, collapsing the ground on them and coming from behind and keeping the archers up top. It's like it, it looks like you know it was storyboarded thought went into this what is the goal like if they're going to do this why is it going? it can't be just to look cool um and so i think purely on a cinematic and strategic level the battle is really really well done and that enough is probably enough for me to not to not completely lose interest um and I think by having uh, Lucy absent looking for Aslan during the middle of the battle also adds that extra tension of, of waiting for her to show up and w- what's going to happen. And and uh, I think his roar and reawakening Narnia is a, is a nice payoff to that weight. Yeah, I'm not I'm not quite there emotionally in the same way I was in the first one, um, just because I'm I, I feel like they I guess the resolution to Peter's arc came you know whenever he gives the sword to Caspian um but that that wasn't quite as powerful to me as the character resolutions that happened prior to the battle there so I'm I'm not annoyed with anyone going into that battle I'm just like man we've seen some great character journeys and we're all here we know what we're fighting for I'm still kind of going into this battle ready to slap Peter around for a little bit <laughs> yeah. and so uh I'm just, I'm not quite there. I'm not negative on the battle at all. I think visually it's great. I think I am just invested enough to be able to appreciate what's going on with the characters. Um, so yeah, I, I enjoy it. There's one little moment that I quite love. is after after the, the how is collapsed and they, all, all characters kind of all run together in the screen and Edmund and Peter just kind of share that look and draw swords and charge into the battle. It's just something so quiet and poetic about it you know running you know they know they probably don't have a chance but they're just going to keep fighting till the end i don't know i do kind of like that moment yeah that that feels very like king king peter you know yeah speaking of edmund like whatever you know flack that gets thrown at peter i think edmund really gets to shine in this movie he's like he's just such a quiet steady guy he's always there for peter he's always doing he's he's got a snarky one-liner or always you know saying the right thing or just gonna kind of quietly do the right thing in the corner whether anyone else does and 
I really like uh, Skander Keen's performance in this film. Oh, I think he, I think he is the best actor in the movie. Um, and he, uh, I actually predicted that out of, of the four Pevensies, he would be the one to go on and have a great career. And I was wrong in politics. <laughs> in politics, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he, he's uh, he's really fantastic. Uh, especially the one moment he really gets to shine is when he delivers the single combat message to Miraz. Uh, oh, he, I he, love he, that he plays, scene. And st- him and Sergio Castellito play off each other so well. That's that's probably the most well acted scene in the entire movie. And speaking of uh, Sergio Castel- uh, Castellito, oh, can we talk about Scandard Keynes? Yes, little absolutely. Bit <laughs> uh, I, he Edmund is my favorite character in this film by far. I think that that in the battle is what I remember most. Is the fact that. I, I forgot about Peter being being so awful for so long, but I remembered Edmund being just like the hero in the corner of the movie, like the guy who's pretty much sitting around waiting for people to mess up and then go and do the right thing. Yeah, um, and maybe my my love for this for his character in this film is also why I still kind of am okay with the White Witch scene because again I'm like, oh, guys, you're just Edmund's got to be there to clean up y'all's messes. That's why I love him. Um, so yeah, I, I really love his character, and it's interesting looking into um, you know some of uh, the interviews from the writers where they were they kind of considered him uh, the less cynical Han Solo of the movie, like the guy who's who's gonna show up and do the right thing, um, and just generally like he's got a quip. He's probably he's somehow despite being like the little like dweeb who's eating Turkish delights in the first one becomes like the coolest character of the film. Um, so yeah, I just, I don't know how much growth he experiences. He's kind of just like this constant good in it who just like believes. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that a lot. Like his, just the fact that through it all, through Peter's ups and downs, he's right there for him. And that's really, really cool. Yeah. And to me, that's proof that not everybody has to have this huge character arc. Sometimes other, other arcs are made better by having kind of a constant for them to be compared to during it and so for him to now be like guys i learned my lesson a big way the last time i'll he's almost there to help facilitate the lessons for everyone else and i don't know about you guys but for 13 year old me the scene where he jumps off the rocket twirls around and cuts down the werewolf was just about the coolest thing i'd ever seen oh he's awesome <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I do, there's some of this cast that I really want to highlight. I think the uh, the three main Telmarines are all really spectacular. Um, uh, Sergio Castelletto, uh, this guy, like he, like look at him now, he looks like your friend's dad. But something about you know his performance is so intense and scary. But I also love that yeah. it's not over the top. It doesn't feel like he's just twirling his mustache. He feels like a real real person that's probably existed many at many points in the, you know in the real world history. Just someone who is who wants power and is dangerous and is willing and knows how to manipulate people and will, and will do anything to get it. Exactly. And I love that like every scene he is in what whatever line he's saying is not is not the actual point of the scene. Like every line is is some kind of double speak where he's you know insinuating something or threatening like the scene between the scene between him and Glazelle after the, the Narnians steal all the supplies is amazing. Mm-hmm. Just those two, those two actors are just fantastic. And every line is, is like some kind of twist or barb. And, and uh, there's so, he just, he just carries so much danger and threat about him. And even the scene, like when Ed when at, when Edmund gives him the dual challenge and 
like the other two lords are kind of playing him and he knows he's being played but he's backed himself so far in a mm-hmm. corner that he still has to accept it's just it's, it's a fantastic performance i love that they, you know, in the book he's kind of a pompous buffoon sort of and i like that they made him you know, more dangerous but also very real compared to the, the witch is a much more magical villain he's a very mundane villain but i think in all the best ways uh, I, th- I think uh sergio brings something so much to the character that's probably not in the screenplay just through his performance he brings such a reality and such a humanity to it i think yeah the screenplay he's just oh he's just the bad king and that's about it well, um, I, I would i think there's, there's a lot of like game of thrones uh you know machinations going on between him Glazelle and Sepestmian. There's a, there's a lot of stuff going on that was put in there in the screenplay. Right, but I think as Sergio adds, I think there are scenes where it is just him being the bad king, and Sergio brings another layer to it, another mm-hmm. um, element to it. And so I, I, I definitely think his performance is one of the highlights of the movie. It's amazing the fact that uh, he doesn't speak English particularly well. Really? Um, that's another amazing... Yeah, I don't look at it. When I was talking to him, that, that actually translates some of my questions. Um, so it's like so all that's another. What's that? So it was like all phonetically learned, or I don't think I don't think it was exactly phonetic. I don't think it's that much, but he definitely like English is most definitely not his first language, and so I think that makes his performance. In fact, he's doing some really subtle things with language, you know, where he's putting emphasis where it's like this bloody. Nanny. I love the way he says. Where he's like, you know, <laughs> where he yeah, where he's he's saying one thing, but his eyes are saying something else. So it, it's a it's a it's amazing the fact that English isn't even his first language that he's able to do that. Yeah, I'm thinking about like the scene where Caspian breaks into his bedroom, which is. Not a, not my favorite scene, but nah. I love that he has a sword to his throat. Yet he is the one he is owning that scene. Yeah, everything is surrounding him. He's the one controlling everyone else. It's again, it really comes down to the performance. Uh, yeah, I I actually consider, I think he probably gives what I would consider the best performance of the film. Um, one, he he makes the most of every single line. Like, like simple things, like just the way he pronounces Nanian. Um, and just like, like you said, subtle things like what his, like his eyes, they just, they feel like they're piercing, but it's never, it never borders on like scene chewing. He just, he feels like a realistic mm-hmm. threat. Um, and even despite, you know, the shortcomings of the scene where, where Caspian um, shows up in, in the room and <laughs> pretty much is just short of saying like my name is Prince Caspian. You killed my father, uh, which I found out. Uh. <laughs> uh, funnily enough, he he actually based his accent off of Inigo Montoya. So, yep, which uh, is the least surprising thing ever. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but what I do appreciate about that scene is the same thing he brought up, where he he's in charge. You know, he's manipulating Caspian. He's manipulating his wife. He like he's a set, he's almost acting as if he's armed in the scene because of his wife. Like. He he has a trigger pointed at Caspian because his wife does, and that's the same thing to him. Just because of how kind of in, how in control he is of of everyone and how he's got his finger on on the pulse of of everyone's feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk real quick about Ben Barnes. Uh like I don't. I think he's not serviced very well at all by the accent. Yeah. You, you, you tell like in a Voyages on Trade, they completely lost it. I think his performance is much better. And I think he's gone on to become a really spectacular actor. Have any of you seen uh, The Punisher? Uh, I saw season I did one. Not. Like I, I think he's pretty incredible in season one uh, and season two as well. But like, and so like, I don't know that it's so much his fault that his character is kind of bland here. I think he does get a couple of really good moments, like when he's giving the speech to the Narnians or 
you know, uh, like when, more like when he's like really quiet and giving looks, I think he's pretty decent. But overall, like I think issues with the screenplay and then, you know, struggling over this accent, I just don't, he's not very impressive for the title character, unfortunately. Yeah, and you can tell that he didn't have a lot of time to really, he was cast very late and you can tell that he didn't really have a lot of time to perfect the accent. Even the Telmarine accent that runs through the movie is, from actor to actor is not consistent at all. It's not really clear what it is. And so it's uh, maybe they just should have gone with British accents, honestly, in, in, in retrospect. They just didn't have time to really think it through, I think. But that said, I really like that sp- the uh, Spanish and Italian cast they got together. I, I, th- I think it's a strong cast. I, uh, I just think they, they could have thought through the culture a little bit more. It seems a little bit like they just said, oh, let's just add some some Spanish influences here. Um it seems a little uh, half baked, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's there's some parts of the design I really like, and some parts where I don't know, just feels a little bit, um, little, un, um, a uh, little unimaginative, I guess. I don't know. I'm kind of mixed on that. All of it was worth it to get Miraz's uh, dual armor, which, which is, is really cool. Amazing. Absolutely. <laughs> um, fruit bonds. I think. I think maybe the the saving grace of of the performance is that despite the fact that that the accent very much just sounds like an impression of Inigo Montoya and isn't consistent with with kind of the culture as a whole. Um, I think he has a certain level of charisma that kind of is, is able to shine through the shortcomings of, of both the script and the accent itself. Um, like, whenever he gives rousing speeches, he seems to be giving Think it with back conviction. Back with his hours. Do what? We have to take back what is ours. <laughs> yeah. See, <laughs> like, there are moments like that where it's, it's you know, we you can kind of roll your eyes at, but I think he is very, very into this role, and he's saying these lines with conviction. So even whenever the accent or, or whatever the problem is, I think he's into it just enough for me to, to buy what the movie needs me to buy from him. All right, so I, we are uh, running out of time. So I think we just uh, when we talk about the score, we, we're not going to do our normal thing where we highlight our favorite tracks. But I do want to do a little bit of an overall discussion. Um, I think one one of my disappointments uh, with this score was how I think a lot of it was just Harry Gregson Williams kind of plugging in old themes from the first film. However, on the flip side of that, listening to it this last time, I really noticed that he was doing some very interesting variations, like themes that were like really triumphant in the first film are coming back and they're actually like really sad and haunting and they feel like they're old and ancient and like things like that he did I thought I found very fascinating um I think like the Telmarine theme is pretty pretty amazing uh but I I was kind of disappointed that there weren't all that many really new themes uh here but I guess like you know bringing back old themes is preferable preferable to what like the MCU does where they don't even where they like create new music for every film which is kind of unfortunate. Ah, we got to keep talking about stuff I don't really like that much. Um, it's uh, yeah, overall I I don't, I don't love the movie but overall I think it's pretty good. But I mean I don't hate the score. Um, I mean there's it's perfectly serviceable. There's when there's happy scenes they have happy music. When there's sad scenes it has sad music which is fine. I think it's a uh, there's a, a bit of a missed opportunity to kind of play it that safe and pl- play it that straightforward. And yeah, you're right. He does just kind of copy paste a lot of themes from the other movie. Uh, I, I don't I don't think it's a it's it's a distraction at all. I don't think it's a bad score or anything. It doesn't stand out in my mind as particularly strong. Like it doesn't. I don't I don't doesn't necessarily add a lot to the movie. I don't think it adds 
another layer or another perspective to the movie that wouldn't be there without the music. It's just mostly just kind of there to fill si- to fill silence, basically. Um, so, so I don't, I don't think it's a bad score by any means, but um, yeah, maybe kind of a missed opportunity, I guess. I, I enjoyed the score. Maybe not as much as Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't know if I can differentiate whether that's because I don't think it's as good or just because I have a lot of nostalgic connection to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe score. Um, I did appreciate uh, some of the variations he did, though. Uh, I think the music, especially in the first half, is a lot of what helped me track emotionally with with main, like you know with Lucy, just as she experiences the excitement of returning and then the sadness of seeing it gone the fact that it i'm kind of glad he just completely overlaid that that classic narnia theme from the uh, the wardrobe where it it just feels like pure fantastical bliss whenever we're back on the beach and then we hear just really sad variations of it and other familiar themes as we walk through the the forest and and we realize that things aren't what they were um so I, I thought it did a really good job at at being the, the musical representation of the reality of the situation. Um, I enjoyed the, the themes for like the Telmarines and everything. I almost wish that they leaned further into like the Spanish influence um, just to really create some standout tracks uh, and to pit their culture against the Narnian culture. Just it would have been cool... Um, for it to really have its complete own identity that is entirely different. Uh, I, I definitely think you can you can draw a line between the two and say, this isn't really Narnian, but I would like to have felt like almost a musical clash, just like, you know, the actual cinematic clash happening. It's just a thought. Like, what if they put, uh, Diego Luna played Caspian? That you wouldn't have the, the whole accent thing to worry about. Hmm. He would have been great. Just give him British accents and call it a day. That's what <laughs> I say. <laughs> I, I, so uh, also uh, moving to our ranking our rating star rating uh brian what would you give this film out of five stars and how does it compare to line the witch in the wardrobe with, uh, for you oh let me see here out of five stars well if we're gonna and, and also uh, what would your uh, star rating for okay. the wardrobe um i'd say they probably both get a three or a three and a half if, if we're gonna say that two and a half is right down the middle completely neutral um then i'd say I'd say both of them probably get about the same rating, which is th- uh, either a three or three and a half, um, where I think they're, yeah, I watch them and I uh, I find them uh, f- f- fairly entertaining. Uh, some scenes kind of emotionally engage me and some scenes don't. Um, I think with both of them, if I hadn't read the book, I probably would have watched them once and went, oh, that was, that was, that was pretty good. And I don't, probably would not have felt compelled to see them again. Um, so I think that these are pretty good movies. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, as a fan of the book, I can go on and on and on about, oh, this, 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 and that. I guess as an adaptation, <laughs> I, I kind of feel about the same way about them. Like, oh, they're they're okay. Um, I don't have nearly the emotional experience I do in the book, personally. It's not a world I want to keep on revisiting. I keep going back to the books, and it really has not much to do with, obviously, the plot suspense is gone. I've already read them, but I'm going to go back into that world again. Um, I don't really feel that with the movies at all. I feel like one viewing kind of kind of gets done what i what i need to get done with it um but uh as an adaptation it's like okay they did an okay job i think it's a situation where andrew adamson didn't fully understand the books didn't understand the nuances and the depth that's there but i think he really liked them um and so he does an okay job uh with the plot even though it doesn't have the kind of depth underneath it that keeps me going back to the books but to answer your question i'd say uh, probably both get either three or three and a half all right and uh what about you james um so 
with Blend the Witch and the Wardrobe being a three and a half for me, I, I'd probably go three for Prince Caspian. Um, I appreciate that it, it's a darker film, and, and I think a lot of the darkness in it does pay off. Um, however, I think just Peter's annoying annoyance in the film kind of hurts my enjoyment for a, a good bit of the runtime. Um, but I still think, uh, like... Like Brian said, like I think you can, you can definitely discern an appreciation of the book just from the film, um, and so I, I think it's obvious he enjoys the books, uh, and at the very least has a surface level understanding of a lot of what makes them work. Uh, and so I, I definitely think there's more good than bad here. It's just yeah. By by the end of Prince Caspian, for me. I don't feel like I experienced a full and complete start to finish satisfying story. And mm-hmm. for the the faults of wardrobe, I do feel that with that movie. Um, and I just think the, the, the dynamic of the, the Pevensies and, and the believability they have as siblings in that one really carries me through that first film in a way that's not quite here uh, in this one. So I, I put Lion, the Witch and Wardrobe first and then this second. I, 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 I really like the way you said that, where it's, yeah, wardrobe feels like a more satisfying arc of a story, kind of act one, act two, act three. And this one feels a lot more uneven, uh, where there's moments, oh, that was a great scene, or oh, that one wasn't so good. And it's kind of, this one's a little more uh, kind of all over the place. So where do they balance out? Well, like wardrobe is kind of consistently uh, pretty good, and then it ends, it's kind of satisfying. And this one's kind of fluctuates, I think, between really good or not so good or uneven and the pacing's all off. So, yeah, it's kind of a mixture of which one I like better. Yeah, so for me, I would I would give it three and a half stars, which is the same rating I gave Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe. I think I would rate the Lion, the Wish, and the Wardrobe a little higher. I think it's, I think what you said pretty much, it's it's, it's a more successful film overall. I, I, I think this film is structurally a little stronger, and I really appreciate Adamson's vision. That I think he is a, a very good looking movie. I think he makes really good use of the locations and the sets. It's it's like it's a just an impressive film to look at. Um yeah, but the story it doesn't track as well as Line Wars and the Worship. So I would rank this a little bit below that despite them having the same rating. Uh one last thing as we talk about the legacy, uh Brian, you're a bit more plugged into the kind of the, the Narnia fandom as a whole. What what do you think this film's legacy is within the Narnian fandom? Within people like that love the books, I, I think it's quite mixed. I think uh, you'll say it to meant bring it up to some people, and they'll just have to spit and say, "Oh, the Prince Caspian, they they ruined it," you know. And then you have others that really kind of quite like it. Um, so I think it's uh, it probably leans negative to be honest. Uh, there's a feeling of oh, they got off to they got off to a pretty good start there with the line of the witch and the wardrobe, and there was a lot of promise, and they messed it up with Prince Caspian. Um, that's probably the legacy it has among uh, the fandom in general. I'm someone in the minority that I, I, I kind of like the movie and have a, um, a lot of the changes they make to the book, a lot of them. I don't always agree with how it was executed. I don't always agree with what they did, but okay, I see what they're trying to do here, and sometimes they're successful at it. So I'm kind of in the minority there somewhat, I would say. So on its initial release, it earned $141 million domestically and $278 million in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $419 million on its $225 million budget. And supposedly Disney spent around $175 million to market this film. So pretty much any way you look at it, this film lost them a lot of money and it was also a massive drop in the box office uh because you know the line that was in the wardrobe made 745 million um which yeah that's a that's that's not good any way you look at it um and i'm really shocked that the series just didn't die right then and there like today if that had happened 
it, it, I, don't, I don't think there's any chance you would have gotten you know, Fox coming on and making a $150 million sequel. Yeah, I, I guess part of maybe the reason would be that uh, that they they could acknowledge maybe some of the faults on their end of its release date and its just bloated budget um, and, you know, a confidence in what they could do with the sequel given that Don Treader kind of returns to the more fantastical, magical feeling of wardrobe. They were kind of banking on recapturing that with with a new one, um, and between that and a, a reduced budget, they could they could get back on track to to you know making making crazy amounts of money with the series again. And so, as far as the critical response, uh, it was mildly positive, uh, but kind of tepid. Uh, it holds a sixty seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes and a sixty two on Metacritic. Um, you know, there weren't too many people out there just bashing the film, but even the people who liked it weren't exactly, you know, over the moon about it either. It was just, it seemed to be, you know, it wasn't terrible. It was actually pretty watchable, and there were a lot of aspects about it that were really good. So, you know, as far as sequels goes, not bad. And that's just kind of it. Yeah, I seem to remember like a lot of praise for the the technical aspects and the kind of the, just the filmmaking itself. But a lot of people say you know it doesn't have the magic, which is a stupid criticism. But uh, yeah, uh, but actually, I think sort of it it does, it's, it makes a lot of sense here. Like they're, you know, they're intentionally going for a darker story, and that just didn't it didn't connect with audiences or, or critics that way. So as far as like the the general uh, the general thoughts on this movie on like the online film community. I don't even know what they are because no, no one ever talks about it. Yeah, as far as like outside the Narnia community, I think it's been more, I would suggest this one's probably been more or less forgotten. I think yeah. the, the sense I get among normal people is, yeah, The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, I thought that one was okay. Oh, the, I think they made a couple of sequels, didn't they? Yeah, I think its only real legacy was that it was one of the most expensive films ever made at the time. Yeah, which was a mistake. Yeah. That, that was Disney. This movie failed because... Uh, Disney, like, Blind the Witch and the Wardrobe came out and was a huge hit, and Disney immediately jumped, every, everybody jumped to the conclusion that we've got the next Harry Potter. We've got the next Lord of the Rings. This is the next big thing, and everyone is jumping up and down. They can't wait for the Blind the Witch and the Wardrobe 2. And that wasn't the case. A lot of people went to see Wardrobe. It was a very well-marketed film, and it appealed well enough to a lot of different groups, so it was very... So it was fairly successful critically and very successful commercially, but it wasn't a case where people had a ton of anticipation for the next one. It felt super invested in this world, but the mistaken, the the basic the mistaken belief that that's what was happening here led to a lot of bad decisions. Obviously, it led to a very uh, um, arrogant release date, very overconfident release date, right between Iron Man and Indiana Jones. Like, yeah, we can go toe to toe right in the middle of summer. Um, we can go toe to toe with these big blockbusters. I think it led to some cre- um, bad creative decisions too. Even with the story, I think there's a sense of it's this is so big and there's so much on the line and it's so epic because we have to top the first movie. That's what you do in a big franchise. And maybe making it a little smaller, more intimate story would have been the smarter way to go. I think. I think they were they were assuming a level of emotional in- investment from the audience that wasn't really there. And then even with the budget, there was just uh, they, they had to be so big. We have to has to be two hundred million dollars because we have to make it bigger and more epicer. Um, and then when the movie did, it didn't do horribly. Like uh, we look, it did respectable box office, but because it was so expensive, it was considered a failure. So the mistaken belief that we've got the next Harry Potter here led to some bad financial and creative decisions. I think. Yeah, it's almost like a functional reboot where they're very clearly in the marketing saying like this is a very different story, and and 
that you kind of have to wait till like the, the third, fourth, or fifth film in a series to really shake up the formula because you know, you have to wait till the audience is actually invested that they you know to where they want to see something really different. Um, and they they just didn't have that fandom built up. Yeah, not to not to continue for for too long. I think one one last thing to say just on the topic of of this. I think one of the reasons um, why the effect happened that you're referring to, Brian, of just the assumption that there's this this base of fans there that that's not quite there in reality yeah. is because despite my own real enjoyment of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as a film, uh, and I, I do appreciate a lot of the ways they brought Narnia to life, Narnia by the end of that film, for as much as I, as I enjoy it, it has not been established in the way that Middle Earth was by the end of Fellowship, or even that Hogwarts yeah. was by the end of uh, The Sorcerer's Stone. Um, yeah. Those places just feel alive like as like after the and credits developed roll, and, and, yeah and and really distinct yeah and so it feels like after the credits roll stories continue and so you're you're thinking as an audience member i'm ready to be back there because i know exactly. stuff is happening and i just don't think that you had that same consistent creative vision that created a an entirely cohesive narnia that you felt continued after the credits rolled um, I I love wardrobe. I think I love a lot of the design of that film. But again, Narnia just it didn't feel like they had that Jackson, the the Peter Jackson behind it, who was just like painstakingly creating a, a real lived in world that people were ready to jump back into. Yeah, and interestingly, I think Adamson probably did a lot better job giving this film a sense of real place and immediacy. Like there was, there's a bit more CGI in a, a kind of the, the the land. The land didn't feel like a real place as much in the first film as it, as much as it did in this one. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So like on the last episode, I mentioned how the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, despite the fact that people haven't seen it in a bit, it's it feels like they haven't forgotten it. You know, you bring it up and it's like, oh, I remember really liking that. You know, that was a favorite. They they've got fond memories. You know, it's it's some of them are very it's it's very attached to their childhood. Um, but Caspian almost does seem to have been forgotten. You bring it up and it's, oh yeah, that, that did kind of happen. I forgot about that. Um, it, it does not really have that, that staying power in, in memory for people. And this one, I would say with like, with Lion, the Witch, and the Witch was really embraced by the Christian community. That never, that really never happened here. I think like, number one, they just didn't market it to them. And I think you know the the story told here just doesn't lend itself as much to Christian symbolism. Like there's a little bit, you know, the, the struggle between you know faith and doubt and trusting yourself rather than trusting Aslan. But it's not nearly as overtly Christian as you know <laughs> Christ's sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, when you think about why you, you could, as like a, a youth pastor out there, could justify why he chose wardrobe. It's, it's very obvious, very intentional. Um, but there's not so much. Uh, a lot of like one-to-one comparisons to be made in this film and and because of that you know it, it maybe not lost it entirely because i'm sure there loads of the christian community did go out to see it initially but but because of its darker tone and and i also think you know with things like the romance between susan and caspian it's <laughs> it started to resemble more of like maybe a ya kind of i film. thought we were going to be able to get through this without mentioning that <laughs> sorry it has to be brought up uh, but yeah, it just it felt more of just a teen drama fantasy as as opposed to wardrobe. So yeah, uh, that was uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. Uh, thanks for coming on, Brian. Uh, this was a really fun discussion. 
Yeah, really fun. It was. It kind of took me back, to be honest. I can't believe it's been just over ten years now, man. Man, yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, yeah. Why don't you tell us, tell our listeners, you know, where they can find you and follow you online? Uh, that would be uh, well, really, just at narniaweb.com, and then the podcast is Talking Beast, the Narnia podcast. All right. Uh, so again, I'd like to ask you guys, uh, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes. If you want to f- like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. If you want to follow, follow us on Twitter, we're there at, at Franchise Pod. And we're also on Instagram as at Franchise Pod. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? So you can mainly follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as J.L. Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Uh, and you can also join us over on Facebook at Star Wars Fans Who Actually Like Star Wars. Um... And if you're looking for a rewatch, you should definitely join us soon as we're about to make our way as a group through the entirety of the series. So that'll be fun. And I'm also on Letterboxd and there's Gabriel Green. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter as at Gabe A. Green and I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Um, so next week, we will sadly be talking about the Forge of the Dawn Treader. I'm very sorry, but uh, it can't be helped. I am kind of excited because i never saw it and i know a lot of the reaction around it so i'm i'm ready to just to see what film got the reaction that, that it did <laughs> i haven't seen it for quite a few years i i think it'll be interesting like the, the, i remember this is the last time i liked and then there's there's other stuff and <laughs> we will get into uh but it, sh- it should be a fun discussion i, I just hope we won't make because i know that there is a segment of people who actually do like it quite a lot i guess we'll make them mad <laughs> Alright guys, uh, so until next week, we will see you in the sequel. Further up and further in. Now we're back to the beginning. It's just a feeling and no one knows yet. But just because they can't feel it too doesn't mean that you have to forget. Let your memories grow stronger and stronger Till they're before your eyes You'll come back when they call you No need to say goodbye